0: We read this morning from Revelation chapter 11. You'll find it in the bulletins, also in the Bible, in the rack in front of you. <clears throat> Revelation 11, reading from verse 15. Let's hear the word of God. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, and rumbles and peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, people often ask, don't they, why it is, if you've ever been to a performance of Handel's Messiah, that when they sing the Hallelujah Chorus, everybody gets up and stands. The story is that back in 1843, uh, the King of America, King George II, 1843 1843 was still America was part of the great British Empire and the king was in Dublin in Ireland at I think the inaugural concert at which Handel's Messiah was performed and we're told that when it came to the Hallelujah Chorus and it came to the words we've just read this morning the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ King George II stood. Now, you don't have kings. We don't have kings in America today or queens or royalty. But there is a rule that if you're in a room, even if you're sitting eating your dinner and with the, in some meal of state, if the king or the queen stands for whatever reason, everybody in the room has to stand. And so when the king stood, everyone in the concert hall stood. And from then on, so we're told, people stand whenever the Hallelujah Chorus is sung. The English have forgotten the reason. They constantly are saying, why do we do this? And need that story retold to them. Well, we come to, as I've said, a little part of the Hallelujah Chorus this morning. That's how I came up with the wonderful sermon title for this morning, which I thought was very creative when I sent it off to Colin uh, earlier in the week. Well, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and I've been saying that one way to understand the structure of Revelation is that of a spiral staircase. When you go on a spiral staircase, you maybe come in at it at the ground level. Well, you always come in at at the ground level. And then you start winding your way up. And each time you turn a corner, as it were, every time you come back to the same spot, you see where you've come from, but then you see the other side, the area in which the spiral staircase is. You see it from different perspectives. And that's something that's happening here in the book. Uh, here we have a revelation of the future of the world and the church. And we're given points of reference at the beginning of each section that we can identify. And then we are pointed towards the world's end uh, from a series of different perspectives. So, for example, in chapter 1, we have the risen Jesus, the living one, and he is superintending the seven churches, representing all of the churches, everywhere at all periods, in all places, at all times. In chapters 4 and 5, we have the ascended Jesus. We see the throne of God in heaven, and we see the arrival before the throne of the mediator, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And everything then takes place, unlocking the seals of the book, take place in a series of seven. Then in chapters 8 to 11, we have uh, a point of reference when the Lamb takes the seventh seal and unlocks it and then from the unlocking of that, seven, that seventh seal, there are a series of seven trumpet blasts, trumpet judgments. And uh, those seven trumpet judgments arrive throughout all of history as a way of pointing us to the fact that God is using the events of history to get the attention of men and women and to call them to repentance. In chapter 10 and verse 7, we're told this, that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God as he announced to his servants the prophets, would be fulfilled. That's where we're we're at this morning. As we hear the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we're awaiting the mystery of God to be announced and to be fulfilled. And what we discover as the seventh trumpet is sounded is that we come to the end of life as we know it now. The end of life as we know it now. The history of the world has led, as we've been studying, to the defeat, the ultimate defeat of the church. The church, that is, her people, have been slaughtered. Just as the early ministry of our Lord was followed by, at the end, his apparent defeat his death, his execution by the nations of the world, the Gentiles and the Jews. So it will be at the end of history that the world's rejection of Jesus will be mirrored in its final rejection of Jesus' people and the world's execution of Jesus will be mirrored in the final execution of Jesus' people. That's the picture that's been painted thus far. But of course, there's another part to that story, isn't there? Just as Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection, so we discover in the early part of chapter 11 that the church's demise will lead to resurrection from the dead in fact this is the way it's put the church's Easter day reflects Jesus' Easter day because we're told in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter that all her people the church's people will receive a breath of life from God will rise up and in the sight of all of their foes, the small and the great, throughout all of history, in the sight of all of her foes, will be caught up to heaven in a cloud of glory. That's where we're at as we come to our text this morning. History has come to an end. The church has been raised Christ has returned. Judgment has begun for the world. So we come to the passage we've just read. And the first thing we're, we're struck with as we read the passage is this sound of victory that resonates through the passage. At the opening of the seventh seal, there was quietness in heaven, we're told, silence in heaven. But at the sounding of the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, there are loud voices in heaven. The silence of heaven left us waiting in chapter 8. Now the loud voices in heaven tell the story for which we've been waiting. The seventh trumpet is the third is the third woe to be spoken on the face of the planet. It proclaims the triumph of God and it proclaims the demise of the world's power. The world has now been defeated and judged. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now we've been seeing that uh, Satan has been operating throughout the history of time. He's called called the god of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. The use of the singular kingdom here denotes the world as an entity. Including all the peoples and institutions and ideas of the world. Populated by demons. Manipulated by evil spirits. Who assist people and institutions and ideas in expressing their rebellion against God. Hence, Jesus says to his people these words. He says, you know, the world hates you, but know this, it hated me first. And he who hates me hates my father in heaven. And the apostle John writes, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. We need to know that about the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world now refers to the end of history, where an Antichrist will reign for a period. Then there will be one world order, a global colossus. There will be attempted in this world experiment to repeat what was attempted at the Tower of Babel. That is to build a society that expresses humanity's independence from God. Mankind has been ever advancing, but man remains ever the same. Now, of course, God sees the world as one. He sees the individual nations of the world that he has put in place as a means of tempering the beast that lies at the heart of the world system and will emerge in the last days. Empires of whatever kind only only serve to elevate the few at the expense of the many, the oligarchs to the diminishment of human beings and their lives. So these opening words then suggest the vision of a world empire that has often been usurped, dominated by a usurping power and which now has passed into the hands of its true owner, commander, and conqueror, Almighty God. We find this usurper coming out of the shadows in Matthew 4 when he comes to Jesus and he offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world and the glory of them. If only Jesus would fall down And worship him. Who is this usurper? He is the ruler of this world, Jesus called him. But Jesus said, He has no power over me, as the resurrection would prove, as it vindicates Jesus. The course of this world, in all of its parts, with all of its people, In every sphere of human endeavor in science and technology and commerce and trade and education and medicine and entertainment is part of the world system, a system that has been cunningly devised to exclude God and to enthrone humanity. The whole world, we're told, follows the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We very often, don't we, tend to blame people. We blame politicians or we blame uh, gang leaders or or we, we blame celebrities for the diminishment of morality and ethics in our society. We blame people, but... The Bible leads us to say that it's not flesh and blood that we're up against, not people we're up against. Rather, we're up against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms. You and I find ourselves today still in the midst of that struggle. Secular power is a spirit, it is a unit that has various expressions throughout history and around the world. But the passage has already alluded to the fact that the beast will one day arise and the beast will have a global expression. When we come to our passage today, we're given a little brief insight into what lies ahead of the future. There is to be a transfer of power from humanity to God, from Satan to Christ. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Now the language, the idea comes from the second psalm, which has been in the background, the back burner of much of the book of Revelation as we've seen <clears throat> so far. The second psalm is one of a pair, they go together. That's why they're not named in scripture, though we know David wrote them both. They belong together by language, by the use of terms. Psalm 1 describes the perfect, the blessed man. Now, he's not talking there in Psalm 1 about anybody, any of us, for example. He doesn't use, either in Hebrew or in Greek, the words normally used of human beings. When Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man, it uses a word that means a specific male figure. And that blessed man, that figure is none other than the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one perfect man who gave us the law, who loves the law perfectly, who keeps the law completely, and who fulfills the law entirely in himself. This blessed man that's introduced in Psalm 1 is Jesus, our Lord. And Jesus our Lord is the one who has wisdom. The man of Psalm 1 is the man who has all wisdom. This wisdom is an affront to the world. The powers of this world cannot stand a man like this. The moral and spiritual contrast in Psalm 1 comes to a head in Psalm 2. Psalm 1 contrasts this blessed man with the wicked. Psalm 2 picks up the idea of the wicked and shows particularly how the wicked are arranged against this one man. So when you come to at the end of Psalm 1, we talk about the, the in Psalm 1, it talks about the, the blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You get to Psalm 2, verse 1. And we hear about the council of the wicked, the council of the ungodly. Same word. And it's described. Here's how it's described. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers are gathered together in council against the Lord and against his Messiah. That is, against his anointed, his Christ. And the counsel of the ungodly, of the world system will not endure the reign of God and Christ. And they say to one another, let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast their cords from us. You really would think as you read uh, newspapers, you don't read newspapers anymore, As as you read your phone in the morning when you wake up or in the middle of the night and you read the news there, if you actually read beyond that and follow up the articles that are being posted on newspapers and so on uh, around the world, you really would think that we Christians were in a massive majority and that we were enforcing our will on the general population. You would think that from how we're described. Now, why is that? It's because the world system is against God and his Messiah. And the council of the world will not endure the reign of God in Christ. And so they say, we need to break their power. We need to break their power. We need to cast them from us. We need to destroy them. And that's been the story so far in chapter 11 of Revelation. And the church has been left destroyed, annihilated. This is how the early church understood Psalm 2 to be speaking. When they prayed, they prayed like this. They lifted up their voices to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves The rulers are gathered together against the Lord and his Christ, of whom was the psalm speaking. They tell us, or the Holy Spirit tells us, for truly against your holy boy Jesus, where whom you did anoint as Christ, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together gathered together. Psalm 2 is not impressed by the sinful revolt against the reign of God and Christ. And just as Psalm 1 ends in judgment, so in Psalm 2 it ends in judgment. And here in Revelation chapter 11 the fulfillment of those Psalms comes true. The loud voices in heaven represent the heavenly host whom we have met before, representatives, angelic representatives, this time of the created order, animate and inanimate, creation. We know that creation has skin in the game of Jesus coming back. We, we know that from the disruption in the animal kingdom. We know that from the the, the, the disappearing wildlife. We know that from from the encroachment of deserts where once there had been fruitful land. We know that from the the human pollution of the world. We know that the whole world is feeling the injury, the injury of human sin. Paul says that in Romans, the whole creation has been groaning in pain together until now, longing for the revealing of the sons of God, longing for Jesus to come back. And to raise us from the dead. And to resurrect our bodies and to glorify us in his presence. Creation is waiting for that. And it's creation that says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And not only the kingdom of the creation. But this call, this, this sound of victory. Of victory is uttered by the church. The church that has been praying over the centuries. Thy kingdom come. Their prayer is answered. So the 24 elders, we've seen them, the 24 elders uh, uh, are, are there and they're offering their praises to God and they're, they're praising the one who's there as their Messiah. Messiah. And Lord. He will reign forever and ever. In Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, David writes of the Messiah The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In all of the New Testament, Our Lord refers to Jesus. Here it refers to the Father. Our Lord and His Christ, from Psalm 2 to Revelation. Jesus picked up on those words in Psalm 110 when he challenged the assumptions of the people of his day that the Christ would only have human ancestry. David calls him Lord, Jesus said. So how can he be his son? Only if the Lord assumes human nature and becomes human, can he therefore be both David's son, physically by human origin, as well as God's son, eternally, as as, uh, Psalm 110 goes on to speak about the Messiah's eternal generation from the womb before the morning star I have begotten you says the Father so the one who will be the son of David is also the son of God and David's Lord and he is the one who is proclaimed throughout the book of Psalms as the king the Lord is king Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord sitting on a throne. In John chapter 12 we're told Isaiah said these things when he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Jesus is the eternal Lord and King who takes on humanity and becomes the human King, the Messiah King. The mediator. King. By becoming incarnate. And it is he who will deliver. The kingdom he announced when he arrived. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is among you. It's he who will take that kingdom that he has earned. By his blood, sweat, tears, death and resurrection. And return it to God. So that God will be all in all. And Jesus, of course, as God, will be all in all. The sound of victory. And then secondly, there's a song of victory. In verses 16 to, to 18, where the elders, these repre- heavenly beings who represent the people of God this time. So this is a church now that's going to sing. Uh, Their number embraces the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's only one church throughout the whole of Scripture. One church, one people of God. And they pick up the theme of the loud voices, and it's the song of victory. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell down on their faces and worship God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. The angels, as well as humans, prostrate themselves in adoration before God's throne. And they call him Lord God of Sabaoth. That's the Old Testament description. Lord God Almighty. It's a title that's used seven times in the book of Revelation. Seven being the number of perfection and completeness. God is perfectly the Lord God Almighty but it's also described in another way he is the one who is and who was that's very often used as an interpretation of the divine name that God gave himself when he was telling Moses what to call him God gave him a name we don't know what the name was it's it's a mystery to us but we know we do know his interpret God's interpretation of the name that he gave to Moses I am that I am. I am that I am. And what does that tell you about God? What does it mean to say, I am? What it means to say, I exist. Here I am. I exist. I'm here. God's name is the one who is. Existence is the mystery in God. He exists in a way that we cannot comprehend. But to help us, God makes it clearer for us. So throughout this book of Revelation, Uh, we've already had these words being used. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, in other words, God, is unchanging, he is always, he is always. Past, present, future. But here, do you notice he is described in these terms the one who is and who was because what has to come has come the judgment of the world has come the resurrection of the dead has come the promise of jesus return has come the future is now The end point has been reached. The last day's coming of God is taking place. It is no longer future because they sing, look, if you watch the song as it goes on, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. All the anticipation is over. All the expectation is fulfilled. All the hope has been realized. You have taken the power and you reign Again, Psalm 2 is in mind, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged came. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. The judgment of the world has come. It's not described for us here. It will be later. But the judgment of the world has come. But along with the judgment of the world, Here, beloved, beloved this morning, hear this. There is the rewarding of the servants, all of the servants of God. Oh, yes, there are those who have been prophets, those who have gone out with the word of God and proclaimed it on behalf of the rest of the church. There are the saints who perhaps are the martyrs, we don't know. But here are the rest of us, God's servants, those who fear your name both small and great. Those who have died in Jesus have now come to life in Jesus. Those who died as martyrs have been resurrected from the dead. And those whose service to God consisted in simply reverencing his name rather than proclaiming his word Those whose service consisted in worshipping rather than in preaching or prophesying. Those whose service of God was personal rather than public. They've come into their reward. They've come to receive the well done good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. They've been preserved spiritually and physically until the eternal reign begins and all God's people rise together and God will destroy the destroyers of the earth that's left up in the air we'll find out who they are in due course so there's the sound of victory the song of victory and then lastly the sight of victory God's temple in heaven was opened The ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Those last little things there that seem random, the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, those you'll find repeated again and again and again in the apocalyptic scriptures, the kind of... uh, they're the kind of background music whenever God makes a personal appearance in Scripture. They're just signals that, that God Himself is personally present. It's like when when uh, when there's a, ro- a royal assembly and the Queen is going to come out to open Parliament or something, there's a trumpeter goes out and he sounds his bugle or, or whatever it is, he's got he sounds his trumpet anyway. And uh, and the queen comes marching in. Uh, So that's what these are. These are signals to you that God is coming in person. That the coming of God has given way now to his arrival. He's here. There's a theophany like at Sinai. God has begun to show himself to his redeemed people. You know, the original Ark of the Covenant was made by Israel according to the likeness of that was given to Israel by God there in the desert and uh, that ark that was in the tabernacle was in the temple had been lost right about the time of the Babylonian conquest and never found again even Indiana Jones couldn't find the real ark he, he, what he found was a kind of mock-up ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant is totally lost but the archetype exists in heaven. Now remember, these are, these are symbols and signs for us. They're not physical things that you will see. There is no Ark of the Covenant. But what the Ark of the Covenant represented to Israel, what did it represent to Israel? If you'd seen it, you'd see a box covered in gold with two gold cherubim on either side with their wings over their heads, pointing towards one another in this kind of formation. And in the space between there was the throne of God. There was no signal, no sign, no evidence. Because God is invisible. Cannot be seen. When it declares that the Ark of the Covenant was seen, it's telling you, that the believers who are now home not only have perfect access to God, which was won by Jesus on the cross when the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Remember? People then could have seen right into the Holy of Holies, though they would not have seen the ark in there because it had long gone by that time. But in glory, we get to see God. Present, And the fullness of what we will see belongs to another episode. And you'll just have to wait for that. You'll have to wait for it anyway. All of us will have to wait for it. But one thing we can say about this people at this stage, you see, where the focus is all on heaven, is that God's people have entered into life. Fullness of life. And there the vision pauses. And as we wait for the final description, we return today, tomorrow, to our earthly work of waiting and watching and witnessing until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, and we see the King in his beauty, and we behold the land. That is afar off. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts up to look forward to that crowning day when we're all together in your presence, ravished by your love. As we've been gripped by your grace, Lord, we pray that you would take the power and reign. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.